Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this episode, I improvise a bit on the theme of improvisation, borrowing some ideas from both Friedrich Nietzsche and Theodore Adorno, and applying them to the music of the Grateful Dead. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. start by thinking rather broadly about the notion of improvisation. The term improvisation comes from the Latin improvisus, uh, the unforeseen. Uh, and this term, of course, is based on provisus, which is from providere, which means to provide for, to make preparation for. So in essence, that which you improvise is that which you're not, you haven't previously made preparation for. You haven't provided for the eventuality that you're now dealing with. You are, to borrow a Heideggerian term, thrown into a situation, and you have to cope. You have to deal with the situation that's presented to you. At the same time, I'm not trying to suggest, in fact, I explicitly don't want to suggest, that improvisation means a lack of preparedness. What it means is a lack of preparedness in the sense of, of having made provisions for this specific eventuality in this specific moment. It doesn't mean that you're not prepared in general. And that's going to be an important distinction. So I want to I maintain a certain element of, the, of preparedness within improvisation. Now, of course, there are good and bad notions of the term improvisation, right? We tend to valorize improvised music, or at least some people do, freeform jazz and so forth is considered a high art form among many. But we might mean it as something of a uh, criticism if we say of our boss that his or her work plan is improvised. Sounds like they're doing things carelessly. They're doing it on the fly. Now, we might in certain situations, feel that our leader needs to improvise, that they need to be adaptable. So you have this, this good and bad side to improvisation, the uh, openness and, uh, to, to new situations, the adaptability. These are good aspects. The lack of preparation, uh, taking things on the fly in that sense, that may be a more negative side of improvisation. Now, the notion of improvisation in music is a rather confused topic for many people. There's a tendency to either romanticize it or to attempt to debunk it. And we want to avoid, obviously, both of these tendencies, but let's explore what I mean by them first. To romanticize improvisation, it seems to me, is to suggest that it truly is a creation ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. Right. So when we when we romanticize the notion of the improvisatory artist, we're saying that, that he or she has started playing something that has never been heard before, that comes out of nowhere, and it's this miraculous opening up of possibility into our quotidian day-to-day -day lives, right? And, and that there's something almost salvation-oriented uh, with, with this kind of thing, that there's a, a kind of revelatory aspect to it. We often talk about improvisation that way. We're not entirely wrong to do so. There might be something revelatory about improvisation, but that doesn't mean that it's literally coming out of nowhere. 
any musician, including the freeform jazz musician, is coming out of a tradition, and it's a, a like any tradition, it's a tradition that, any living tradition, it's a tradition that is in development, it's a tradition that is being modified by the choices we make now. In essence, I'm improvising my lecture. I have an outline that I'm, I'm working from, um, and I'm working out of a tradition of how to give these kinds of, of presentations in a tradition, my own personal tradition of how I go about uh, preparing these podcasts or preparing my lectures and so on. Uh, but So I am improvising to a certain extent. I'm, I'm allowing thoughts to occur to me as I go, but I've also planned out, I've, I'm prepared for this improvisation. Right? It's not coming out of nowhere. And it's also not coming out of just my own personal preparedness. It's coming out of a tradition for how we present our ideas. Uh, musical improvisations are coming out of a tradition for how to present musical ideas. And of course, those are often genre-specific or borrowing eclectically from a number of genres. And, if, and The Grateful Dead is a, a great example of how that might work. And we'll return to that issue in a moment. The attempt to debunk it, of course, is to say, well, all improvisation is simply using these cliches that you've memorized or variations on cliches that you've memorized uh, and that none of it is really of the moment. Yeah, you might be uh, choosing between A, B, C, and D of these various paths through a given harmonic progression at a given moment, but A, B, C, and D are all worked out ahead of time, right? When we go up in front of a, let's imagine we're in front of a um, vending machine and there are four options and we have a dollar and they're all, they all cost a dollar and we have to get something, right? Let's say that somebody said, I'm hungry, get me a candy bar from that machine, I don't care what it is, right? Well, that's not much improvisation. You have four options and you're just picking one of the four, right? Sure, you're picking one of the four perhaps on the fly. Maybe maybe the Snickers bars, uh, that, that uh, cover of the Snicker bar uh, captured your attention more than the Twix, although I don't know why it would. Twix is shinier and it's a better candy bar. But you get the point. Uh, the point here is that it's not really much of a choice. It's not really improvisation. You have a selected number of uh, options and you just pick one of them. That's debunking improvisation. It's saying that all we have are these options for working our way through certain chord progressions or certain sonic environments, and we just choose one of them either randomly or because it looks uh, shiny to us at the moment or whatever. Neither of these courses do we want to take. We don't want to debunk, nor do we want to romanticize, right? Improvisation, even when you're alone in a room, is a, conversa a conversation. You are enacting a statement in reference to a history of other statements, a set of traditions of various genres and various um, uh, idiolects, various languages of specific performers that you admire or perhaps even disdain, right? I could perhaps uh, improvise a line where I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid sounding like person X, right? As much as I'm trying to uh, perhaps imitate person Y or emulate person Y. Now, there's this issue then that arises as well, that what we're dealing with here is improvisation as a relationship, a temporal relationship, something I'm doing in the present that relates me to both the future and the past. The future part's easy because that's the part we romanticize. We tend to think that what we're doing is we have this unforeseen improvisus, right? Unforeseen future. And that what we're doing is we're, we're working now toward that unforeseen future to make it surprising, to make it the unforeseen. Um, or, but what we're also doing, as I've tried to indicate already, is we're relating to the past. So it's as much as it's about innovation, 
It's also about renovation, about looking into the into the past. This is something that Gary Peters talks about in his writings about improvisation, which are, are worth investigating. So what we're enacting here isn't really just simply off the cuff. We're trying to give rise to something, just like this lecture is trying to give rise to something. I'm trying to say something uh, that you can take uh, you can take elements away from it and remember it. Uh, the exact sentences are improvised, but the overall effect is meant to be something, right? So when we're listening to an improvisation, whether it be this lecture or a piece of music uh, by a freeform jazz artist or a, a, co a concert performance by the Grateful Dead, we're listening in on the becoming work of the work. We're not talking, especially when we're talking about something like the Grateful Dead, right? And they're playing a song. Let's let's even think of one of their um, uh, flexible songs like Dark Star, or even more flexible when you think of space and drums, right? Where it's meant to be this sort of free form improvisation. There's still this attempt to give rise to something which we can call a work. It's not a work in the strong sense that you're going to then repeat that work over and over again the way that we think that when we hear Beethoven's Ninth, we're hearing basically the same thing repeated over and over again, although that may or may not be true depending on how you think about the specificities of performance. But still, we tend to think that when we're listening to Beethoven's Ninth, we're hearing the same thing over and over again. We tend to think that when we're hearing to a when we're listening to a freeform uh, improvisation, that what we're hearing is radically new in some fashion. And yet, even if it's a work that's only to be played once, the point is that an improvisation is giving rise to something. Now, that something is predicated upon is based in the unforeseen. It's different from watching a film, right? When I watch a film. Uh, even though I, let's say I haven't read any reviews, so there have been no spoilers, uh, but I'm watching the film, I don't see what's coming. I don't know what's going to happen, right? Think about the first time you watched The Usual Suspects, if nobody uh, ruined that one for you, right? You might not have seen what was happening. Of course, all my friends claim they did see what's happening, but whatever. Uh, you might not have seen what was, was coming, but you know that the, the film is done. It's a finished film. You know if you walk out, and then you come back at a later date, you come back to see the rest of the movie, you know you're seeing the same thing, right? And with recorded music, that's what, what we're dealing with as well. If I listen to half of an album and I turn it off and then I come back later and listen to the second half of the album, I don't think, oh wow, I wish I would have listened to the, the second half of it the first time I was listening. It would have been a, a much better uh, performance. It's the same performance. It might have been a different experience, but it's the same performance. But with improv Improvisations, the idea is that if you if you hear one uh, version of Dark Star and you walk out of it halfway through and then you come back the next night and hear a different version, that the second half is a completely different thing. So what you're dealing with is a productive and shared ignorance. The idea is that at least provisionally, at least to some extent, the musicians don't know exactly where everything's going and neither do you. So you're united with them in this productive and shared ignorance. Productive because it's giving rise to something new, and it's not just merely uh, uh, nothing, it's, it's, it's something, right? Uh, but it's, uh, it's not totally predictable as to where it's going. So we can say in one sense that, that improvisation provides a kind of utopian vision of the future, where freedom is a condition of that future, where the ideas that, that what improvisation is saying is, ah, the future is what we make it, it's what, how we're shaping it now. But on the other hand, it's also a shaping of our past, that what gives us the conditions 
for improvisation has to do with our relationship to the past. So we're not just ending up in freedom, but we're basing ourselves in a notion of freedom. Now, the problem then becomes in this romanticization versus debunking. Are we giving rise to something brand new that nothing, no one has ever seen before? Or are we just playing the same old tired cliches again and again? Or, as we would hope to find, is there some middle ground? Is there somewhere in between those two extremes where actual improvisation lives and breathes? I'd like us now to take a look at a quotation from Jerry Garcia from an interview he once gave. He said, quote, So, like, I know the trick that you do to get everybody up and dancing, the trick you do to get a standing ovation, you know, we've learned those things as a group, right? But you can't rely on them because they're lies. Once you know them, they then become a device. Once it's a device, it's frozen. I mean, I don't see any sense in doing the same thing over and over again, no matter what it is, no matter how boss it is. Like, to me, being alive means continuing the change, end quote. Oh, I want us to think about that statement for a little bit. In one sense, he seems to be endorsing the same complaint that Theodore Adorno, the critical theorist and philosopher, had uh, with, with improv improvised music, specifically with jazz. He felt that the music of, say, even the best jazz artists like Louis Armstrong, all they were doing was producing cliches. That they were doing the same kind of things over and over again. Take the very typical thing you learn when you're starting to improvise in jazz. You learn how to deal with 2-5-1 progressions, right? Because jazz is full of 2-5-1 progressions. It's the basic cadential motion. And you learn these various ways of navigating that space. Well, what are those ways? They're ways that have been tried and tested, and uh, maybe they're more indicative of one player or another, but they become parts of the language. In fact, that's the interesting thing about improvisation in a language. If you move too far away from the language, you seem to not be speaking that language, right? Uh, the English language has plenty of French borrow words, plenty of Latin borrow words, but if I stray too far into borrowing words from these other languages, I'm no longer really speaking English, right? Uh, especially if I just simply move into speaking another language. Now, there are times in improvisation where we do that, and we'll come back to that issue. But the idea here is that when we're speaking the 251 language in jazz, there are certain things that we do. We might uh, create variations on that, but we're borrowing from these, these patterns, these ways of navigating that space. Adorno felt that that was pseudo-individualization, that it was a way of pretending that we're improvising when really all we're doing is we're going back to that uh, vending machine where there are four candy bars and we're just picking one of the four. That's not really improvisation as far as Adorno is concerned. Now, we're going to come back to Adorno in the next segment and see that there may be a way of using Adorno to valorize improvisation. Now, Nietzsche shared some of these same concerns. 
right? Uh, he thought that inspiration and improvisation had a quasi-mythical aspect to it, at least the way we talk about it. He was concerned with that same romanticization that I was talking about previously. He felt that this, the, this notion of inspiration and improvisation, that they hid a deeper sense of selection and preparedness. So Nietzsche is caught up in that same concern with which we started, that the improvised, in one sense, is dealing with the unforeseen, but on, in another sense, it's dealing with that unforeseen from a place of preparedness. He writes in uh, Human All Too Human, All great artists have been great workers, inexhaustible not only in invention, but also in rejection, sifting, transforming, ordering. So for Nietzsche, the idea isn't just that you're spouting out whatever comes to you in the moment, but that your work of improvisation, your work as a creative artist, your work is giving shape to yourself, right? And, which is a major concern for Nietzsche, that the idea of, of our lives is that we're giving shape to ourselves. We're, we're creating style in our way of, of approaching life. That part of that has to do not with just this endless uh, regurgitation of cliches or and neither with an endless chaotic spraying forth of, of, of ideas, unformed ideas, but rather what we're doing is we're constantly rejecting, we're constantly sifting, transforming, ordering. So again, we have this play of the Dionysian and the Apollinean. Sure, we want some of that inexhaustibleness of, of just the effusion of ideas, but not all ideas are equal. Not all ideas are equally good, right? There's plenty of, of, as any of us know who improvise, there's plenty of crap that occurs to us. And what we do is we select, we order, we transform. And in fact, some of those things, some of those quote-unquote mistakes that we make in improvisation are opportunities for ordering. You follow up the mistake, you make it right, just like you do in life. You make a mistake, you make it right. And sometimes you learn. We often think it's a cliche of its own, right? That we learn from our mistakes. So the outflow of seemingly spontaneous expression is really, for Nietzsche, the manifestation of careful preparation. It is the efflorescence, the flowering forth of something cultivated, something with a certain depth. And we'll see this more in the next segment when I turn to depth uh, in, in Adorno. So for Nietzsche, also from human all too human, art involves a kind of retrogression, a kind of going back. Now he thinks of this for two reasons. On the one hand, it's because it involves adults playing like children, right? That's the whole point of creation is that we are playing. There's a ludic aspect to it. Not, it's not work, even though we, we talk about art works, there's a great deal of play involved in this kind of work. And as we saw last time when talking about Nietzsche and, and uh, the Grateful Dead and so on, part of this is identifying with the cosmic child of Heraclitus. It's, it's partly Nietzsche's uh, ontological view of the world or metaphysical view of the world that the world itself is this force of creation and destruction and this sort of cyclic giving rise to things only to let them fall again. Uh, and this need not be nihilism because we can identify with that spirit. We can identify with the idea of creation. But secondly, art involves a kind of retrogression because he says that we are not living in a time of art. Modernity, owing to instrumental rationality or the Socratic take on science, modernity is not the time of art. The time in which we live is not the time of art. That doesn't mean that great art isn't being created now. In fact, 
this is an opportunity for great art, in fact, in part because it's a reaction to its own being out of time. Part of what we mean by the timelessness of art for Nietzsche is not just that it lasts forever, but that it is literally out of time. It is, it is an expression of time out of joint. It is displaced from a, a, a era in which art was a constructive form of living in the world. We no longer think of it that way. We, we put it in museums. We don't live art in the same way, and Nietzsche's encouraging us to do that again. Now, we can see this in the dead as well. This is part of their reverence for older folk styles, for bluegrass, for instance, right? Um, and the folk music that they were interested in is specifically the music collected on a series of, of archival recordings uh, curated by Harry Smith, right? And these are not polished recordings. These are recordings that are themselves somewhat scratchy. Uh, they're often field recordings, but they're also recordings of uh, performers who have a very different sense of pitch, have a very different sense of time, have a very different sense of, uh, of form than we tend to think of when we're listening to even music that we call folk music, right? Where the time is much more flexible, the sense of pitch is much more flexible. And this is supposed to be indicative of what is sometimes called the weird old America, which for the dead, part of their interest in, the, in touring was to get contact with that weird old America, the, the small places, the places that aren't the official uh, representations of America, the day-to-day -day living. So this connection with a past, a hidden past, right, is part of what's involved in this retrogression of art. Now, we've talked about the idea of the three types of repetition before in relation to the eternal recurrence, and I want to revisit that a bit, because I think that also tells us something about approaches to improvisation. And I think all three of these uh, relationships to time have to do with improvisation. Remember that music is a time art, and I said before that that means two things. On the one hand, it means that time shapes music. Music is only uttered in time, so time takes place, or rather, music takes place in time, right? We understand a phrase that has takes up a certain amount of measures, and that's a sort of spatialization of time, and then that's balanced by another phrase that perhaps takes up the same amount of measures. But of course, it doesn't take up the same time, because it's in two different bits of time, one has to follow the other, and yet we say that it takes up the same amount of time, roughly, right? Measures being a measure of time. So music takes place in time, but also music helps construct time. And in that sense, time takes place in music. Now let's, let's unpack that a little bit, right? So we said recently, in, in a recent episode, the one on the eternal recurrence, that there were three types of repetition, and that this was Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche. That there's habit, right? And obviously that applies to improvisation as well. Habit. You get up at basically the same time each day. Uh, you have breakfast roughly at the same time. You shower at the same time. You go to bed at the same time. We have these habits. Your habits might not involve those exact things. Your habits might involve something else. But we don't reinvent our day every day. Certain things we expect to be the same. And that's habit, right? That's the cyclicity of things. This, this notion of repetition uh, as cyclicity. Um, well, that is involved in improvisation as well. We saw that already with the two-five-one paradigms in jazz, right? That that uh, that in really, whenever you're improvising over a progression that repeats, like the blues or like any pretty much any song by the Grateful Dead or or any jazz song, you're dealing with a cyclicity. You're expected uh, to 
to respond to certain events in certain orders, and that provides a kind of habitual approach to improvisation. Then there is a more memory-based approach to improvisation, and this has to do in part with playing in the styles of the past, right? So when I'm playing jazz, let's say, and I'm drawing on a, um, a way of navigating 2-5-1 that's more indicative of, say, Barney Bigard, the clarinet player for uh, Duke Ellington, or John Coltrane, the famous saxophone player, I'm dealing with different images of myself as it relates to the past. If I'm someone who's playing on guitar and I'm trying to play in the style of a clarinetist or a saxophone player, I'm making a certain stake on who I am and my relationship to jazz tradition. The Grateful Dead are particularly well suited for this idea of improvisation as memory, because they all come from very different traditions. Uh, Garcia was, was very well versed in, in bluegrass. Phil Lesh is very well versed in the avant-garde. Uh, Bill Kreutzmann, very well versed in, in rock. Uh, Mickey Hart, very well versed in world music. So they're all drawing on these different traditions, these different uh, ideas of the past. And in borrowing from them and drawing upon them, and, so, and certain of their pieces, you can hear a little bit of ragtime here, a little bit of blues here, a little bit of, of more standard psychedelic rock here, if standard is the right word. Um, that you have these different things that you're drawing from, right? Um, and, and the Grateful Dead does that quite well. They're bringing together these things. And what is that? When we're giving shape to ourselves, we're drawing on elements of the past. Again, there's no such thing really as creation ex nihilo, as coming from nowhere. Those moments that come from nowhere are meant to stand out as a kind of reaction to things that come from somewhere, right? So even when we say that we're creating out of nothing or we're trying to give rise to the unrecognizable, that's in reference to a past. But then there's a third kind of time, and it is the most difficult to understand, right? Which is why Deleuze uses the eternal recurrence. The eternal recurrence is, is an interesting concept because you can see say that it's just the same thing over and over again, but it's not really. It's the same thing over and over again showing up as a set of differences, right? Um, and we saw with Freud that he compares this uh, to the, the death instinct that... Uh, that the, or rather, Deleuze uh, compares the eternal recurrence to the death instinct um, of, of Freud, this idea of trying to withdraw from the world, to lead toward what Freud would call a kind of ego quiescence. So it's here that time kind of speaks. This is music giving rise to time, or, or time taking place within music, rather than music taking place within time. So it's time itself that repeats. And time itself repeats through a kind of eternal differentiation, an eternal new, right? Not things in time. Time repeats as the immersive sea of the ever-different. And this is, again, what Freud calls ego quiescence, or the oceanic feeling, the sense of an extension of the self, right? We might consider the Dionysian impulse, or we might follow Deleuze and Lacan in labeling it the body without organs, the undifferentiated self that is not closed off from desire, but seeks a quietude within desire, or more importantly, from pleasure. Let's think about that for a second. Desire tends to be outwardly directed. I desire this thing, I pursue it, I get it, then I no longer desire it, I desire something else. This can go on forever. Desire, in that sense, drives us outward toward other things. 
But pleasure need not do so. Pleasure can be, and often is, about a kind of immersion, about a kind of precious stasis, staying within the circumference of pleasure. I'm enjoying this. I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm, I'm experiencing pleasure. What, what do we say when we want someone to have pleasure? We say, enjoy yourself. Right? So enjoying myself by expanding the very notion of what constitutes the self. This is part of expanding the doors or opening the doors of perception and expanding consciousness. This idea that the self reaches beyond the boundaries of my own body, beyond the limits of my own desires, to be this larger oceanic sense of enjoyment, enjoyment of the self as an expanded self. So notice, returning to that quotation that we started with a moment ago from, from Garcia, this idea that uh, you learn these various tricks, these cliches, but once they're a device, they're frozen. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like the dialectic between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. You have this endless chaotic uh, set of ideas, but then through our selective process, through our discernment, our sense of what is good and what is bad, we give rise to these formations of them. We form them. That's what we're doing in improvisation. We're not just constantly giving rise to new things. We're forming them. We're shaping them. We're trying to lead somewhere. But once then becomes too predictable, then it becomes a lie. Now, the Apollonian always involves a lie. It always involves a semblance. But there are good lies, as we know, in Nietzsche, and there are bad lies. There are lies that make us alive to life, lies that bring us to living, that are good for living, right? Because of the beautiful uh, form that makes us the aesthetic justification of the world, the thing that brings us closer to a, a enjoyment of life, pleasure. But then there are the lies that become too predictable. The, oh, I've already seen it, and so I no longer see it. The trick is to give rise to the beautiful lie, to give rise to pleasure. And when we are alive to pleasure, we're involved, we're in it. When we've had the same kind of pleasure in a predictable manner over and over again, we become dead to it. It's no longer a pleasure because it's no longer about experience. So these different approaches to time are all available in improvisation. But the one that you're seeking, usually, is this sense of quietude, this sense of pleasure. And you can see how repetition plays into that. Listen to a Grateful Dead performance that involves improvisation. You'll hear both Jerry Garcia, Kreutzmann on, on the drums, and Mickey Hart on the drums, uh, Lesh on the bass. They will get themselves into these repetitive patterns. The idea isn't to just go on with that forever, of course, but those patterns create a kind of space, and then they open up to different possibilities. So that repetition as habit, that repetition as cyclicity, that repetition of past styles as borrowing from memory from the past, get transported into something else. And transportation, by the way, is one of their favorite metaphors, the Grateful Dead's favorite metaphors. Uh, in fact, Mickey Hart once said that they're in the transportation business. They're trying to get you somewhere. What they're trying to get you into is an immersion in an ever unforeseen unfolding of pleasure.
Clearly, improvisation involves us in questions of freedom. Just how free are we? The debunking notion of improvisation would say we're not really free at all. We're standing in front of that vending machine, there are four candy bars, we pick one, we move on. Right? All improvisation is, is a kind of expansion of that. We have a whole bunch of cliches we learn, we apply them. Those of us who apply them cleverly, link one cliche in a somewhat surprising manner to another, we get the award for being a true improviser. Those of us who just play them by rote and you do them the same way over and over again, we get found out as being not so good improvisers. The distinction between the good improviser and the bad improviser isn't so much. Then there's the romanticized view. We're radically free. We can do whatever we want. And, and therefore, the true uh, improviser is the one that, that works with that freedom the most, in the most spectacular manner. Now, I'm hoping we've already cast some doubt on either of these extremes. We're not totally free. But we're not consigned to a total unfreedom either. How do we find that middle ground? Well, let's go very briefly. Let's talk about one of the most famous uh, thought experiments when it comes to uh, freedom and freedom of choice. This is what's sometimes referred to as Buridan's ass and because of the famous philosopher uh, John Buridan, although this particular thought experiment may not be his directly. It's a simple enough experiment. We have an ass, right, a donkey, and he's caught between two bales of hay. Uh, they are both equally delicious. They're both equally far apart from him. He's a rational ass, and so therefore he's going to choose uh, based on reason, and there's no rational reason to choose one over the other. So he starves to death. A seemingly irrational thing to do, right? Now there are a number of uh, things that are interesting about this, this thought experiment, and there are a number of flaws, and I hope you already see them, but let's point some of them out. When does this ever happen? When are we ever in a situation? Now you can say, well, that's the whole point of a thought experiment is that you're, you're creating some kind of idealized, although in this case, I guess it's a non-idealized uh, situation so that we can really question what's at stake in, in the thought of freedom, right? And freedom of choice. But what this does is it reduces our behavior in the world to a very simple either or. We're, we're at a crossroads, and either path is equally desirable. And so, how do we decide on one over the other? But the fact of the matter is, how do we get to that crossroads? Or rather, the question of the matter is, how do we get to that crossroads? What brought us there in the first place? What things are we looking for in making this decision? No decision, even of seemingly equally valid things. That decision comes about because we have a history that's led us to this. We might have a history of preferring right over left or preferring, uh, you know, uh, to turn our head in one direction or the other if we're the, the hungry ass here. All decisions come about because of a history, right? None of them are radically free. That history, of course, has, has conditioned the way that we're going to choose now. And so you might say to yourself, well, if we prefer right to left, then we're not really free at all. That's the whole point, that we're, we're conditioned to like right rather than left. Sure. But no one is suggesting, or at least I'm not suggesting, that our every time we make a choice, it's a radical moment of freedom, right? Freedom is constrained. We're, we're swimming down a river here. And that river is pushing us in certain directions. And so what do you do when you're, when you're swimming down a river and you want to get to a shore? You don't want to drown. Do you push back in the opposite direction? No. You're going to fatigue yourself and you're going to drown. What you do is you ease your way toward one bank or the other. You swim with the river and use its 
flow in order to help direct where you want to go. You're not totally free, but you're not totally enslaved to the flow of the river either. You work within its flow. Now, this is getting us towards something that Adorno considers uh, the speculative, right? And for him, the speculative, it goes beyond whatever is the case, right? So whatever is the case, whatever is the fact of the matter, we have to deal with that. We're stuck in the river's flow, but we're not totally enslaved to it, right? We work beyond the merely given. We work beyond that. We try to shape the, the world beyond mere appearance. And so for him, and this is a quote, speculation is, quote, the element of freedom in thought. It's the element of freedom because it is the point at which the expressive need of the subject breaks through the conventional and canalized ideas in which he moves and asserts himself, right? So the idea is that, of course, we do have these conventional and canalized ideas. There are certain ways that we're used to doing things, right? Business as usual. Uh, and those ways have developed because they're effective, and we saw this in the quotation from Jerry Garcia before. We learn how to make people dance. We learn how to pe make people applaud. Those are effective. They're useful. But when they become canalized, when they become the same thing over and over again, that's no longer freedom, neither for them nor for us, right? That's a sort of almost Pavlovian response. And so uh, Adorno writes that this breakthrough of the limits set on expression from within, together with the smashing of the facade of life in which one happens to find oneself, these two elements may be one and the same thing. So, so the breakthrough of the expression, the, the breaking out of convention, and this uh, smashing through the idea that life just is what it is, these things come together. They're one and the same thing. So our expansion of the possibilities of life have to do with expression, our attempt to express ourselves. Now, as we already saw, expression isn't free either. We're not just doing whatever we want at any time. We're building on traditions, no matter how free we think we are. We're dealing with conventionalized ways of acting, and yet we, we draw on these various conventions in order to give rise to something new, in order to give style to oneself, in order to shape oneself, to become, as Nietzsche likes to say, who we are, becoming who we are. So this has a kind of uh, ethical quality to it. We're drawing from these various uh, modes of expression in the past in order to uh, both pay homage to that past, but also to forge a path toward a future for our own sense of style, our own way of bringing these things together. And so therefore, the more experiences we have, the deeper, in a sense, we are. So Burden's ass comes up with this choice, but it's not an either or in a sort of shallow sense. Burden's ass has a past, and we are not Burden's ass. We are people that have a long historical understanding of the world that we can draw upon. And the Grateful Dead are a wonderful example of that. Drawing from bluegrass, drawing from the avant-garde, drawing from rock and roll, drawing from jazz and, and various types of jazz, whether it be Coltrane or Miles Davis or more freeform jazz, drawing from world music. There are all these possibilities that they can draw from that give them depth. So when they're improvising, the idea here isn't that they're doing the same thing over and over again. They're just relying on cliches. They're relying on a whole bunch of cliches, a whole bunch of bits of language that they're drawing from all these different traditions that therefore allow the opportunities of the moment to show up to them. And that's what we're talking about here, right? Improvisation is a way of letting the world show up to you. 
So that it's not just the same thing over and over again. It is a response to the world in this moment. A response where we can do something or say something effective in this moment. Right? So let's look at one more quotation from Jerry Garcia, and it's one that I think is very fascinating, right? It gets referenced a lot by, by all sorts of different writers, and, and even other members of the dead reference this quotation quite a bit, and they all take it to mean something different, and I'll, I'll have my own reading of it, of course, but let's hear it first. He's talking about, uh, I think it was after one of the acid tests, and they're in the bus, right? The, the further bus. And he says, we drive the bus over to Watts Towers. So they're in LA. Watts Towers, uh, very quickly, uh, it's this, this huge set of edifices, these two towers that were constructed by this man, this sort of outsider artist, who's just working on his own and creating these huge uh, monuments to, to creation. And they're, they're not they're outside of the um, the normal bounds of art, so to speak, and in a sense, they're they're a good example of the weird old America of this guy who just had a creative impulse and he decided to do something monumental. So let's go back to Garcia. Garcia says, "We drive the bus over to the Watts Towers. We got out to look at them. The city of Los Angeles said these things are dangerous. They're going to fall down and hurt somebody. They moved wreckers and things like that in there and cranes, and they had to pull down this guy's towers after he was dead." They couldn't budge them. They couldn't pull them down. They said, well, they're solid. So now they're in the tourist pamphlets and stuff like that. But my thoughts about that were something like, well, if you work by yourself as hard as you can every day, after you're dead, you've left something behind that they can't tear down. If you work real hard, that's the payoff. The individual artist's payoff. That thing that exists after you're dead. And I thought, wow, that's not it for me. Instead of making something that lasts forever, I thought, I think, I would rather have fun. For me, it was more important to be involved in something that was flowing and dynamic and not so solid that you couldn't dare it down. End quote. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about this, right? First of all, he, he's seeing this work that's from an outsider artist, this, this guy who's uh, an emblem, if you will, of the weird old America. And the first part of the thing makes it seem like he's, this guy has worked really hard to create these things that can't be torn down, that have the, at least the ability to last forever, that have an, a, a strong Apollinean sense. They're not going anywhere, right? And that, that's the payoff. He says it. That's the payoff for the individual artist. Right? So obviously, then there's this turn in the quotation. He says that's not it for him, for Garcia. And what that means to me is that that's not it for him in the sense that he doesn't want to be an individual artist. An improviser is inherently not an individual artist. Maybe no artist is truly individual. There is no creation ex nihilo, no creation out of nothing. All creation is a conversation with the cosmic child of Heraclitus, if you wish, or with nature, or with the past of art, but it's always a conversation. You're always engaged with something, and you're alive to its movements and its uh, own sense of being, and you're shaping it. You're giving that form. But He's acknowledging this. That's the turn in the quotation. That he, it's not it for him, right? He doesn't want something that necessarily lasts forever. Uh, now, Bob Weir, in a, in a um, recent documentary on the dead, emphasizes the fun part of it. But I, I kind of think that's the wrong emphasis. Or maybe Weir has some other idea of what fun means, and we don't have to worry about that. But for me, what's important is that last line, that, uh, that Garcia is interested in being involved in something that was flowing and dynamic and not so solid that you couldn't tear it down. The flowing and dynamic, that just seems to be yet another pay-on 
to the 1960s Dionysian, right? That he wants to be involved in the ever-flowing Heraclitean river where you can never step into the same river twice. Everything is always different, always changing. But I don't think that's it. I think I'm putting a certain amount of emphasis on that very last phrase. Not so solid that you couldn't tear it down. But not, not solid. Not simply liquid. Not simply constant change. You're giving rise to something. You're giving rise to something that at least for a moment has form, that stands up, that, that has shape to it, right? We're not usually interested, although sometimes we are, but we're not usually interested, certainly not in the dead, in improvisations that that are nothing, that are simply flow, that, that give rise to no sense of space. I mean, notice that w- what they t- call their free improvisation is space. They're trying to create a space. They're trying to give form to something. Space, in our experience of it, uh, you know, it's 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 not simply endless. We we know that, that perhaps the universe is endless in some sense, right? Although uh, scientists even question that. But when we experience space, we give shape to it. We make it into a place. We make it into something that has a contour, that has boundaries, that can be experienceable, right? So once again, we're back here, it seems to me, to the Apollinean and the Dionysian. We give form, but we don't expect that form to last forever. Yeah, the Apollinean is the sense of, of, of a, uh, an attempt at permanence, but being a true artist, a, a true improviser, someone who is willing to navigate that space between the Apollinean and the Dionysian, we realize that we can't hold the sense of the permanent sacrosanct. We can't expect it to, to be impermeable in its, in its uh, temporary permanence. Like Adorno says, what we're doing is we're giving depth to ourselves. There are all these experiences, all these cliches, all these conventions that we build on in order to break through convention, in order to break through the cliche, in order to do something new with something old. It's not creation out of nothing. It's not ex nihilo. But rather, as, as Adorno puts it, we are breaking through the limits of expression. We are smashing the facade of life in order to show that we have an impact on life. We're not stuck like Burden's ass or like my metaphor of the of the vending machine uh, with the four candy bars or Burden's ass with the two bales of hay. We are, we're not stuck with a limited amount of, of equally valid or invalid choices. We're stuck with a depth of past experience that we're drawing on, both our own and those of the traditions that we valorize and that we, that we, um, we value. And like Nietzsche, what we do with all that is we take all these past experiences of of our own and of others, and we use that to give style to ourselves. Improvisation is a manner of facing up to life, to what it shows us, and doing something with what it shows us. It is a way in which we become who we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. 
I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwitchjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon.